You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Welcome to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and our guest this portion of our program is Joseph Amit. Joseph is the author of numerous books, including Sleep Better with Mindfulness Meditation, Buddha's Book of Stress Reduction, A Basket of Plums, Songs for the Practice of Mindfulness Meditation, and Buddha's Book of Meditation. These books all have forewords by the late Thich Nhat Hanh, and Emmett's book on sleep is considered one of the best self-help books written and has been translated into 11 languages. In his last book, which we discussed together in that year of 2016, Finding the Blue Sky, he recounts his own journey toward well-being and happiness through mindfulness. I hope you'll stay with us as we discuss Zen meditation, mindful walking, and his training with the late Thich Nhat Hanh in France at the world-renowned Plum Village because it was Thich Nhat Hanh who appointed him a teacher in his tradition of Zen, enabling Joseph to start and lead for the past quarter century the Mindfulness Meditation Center in Canada. Joseph, it's such a pleasure to be back with you again. Yes, it's nice to hear from you also. So I thought it would be helpful to anybody listening about your own discovery of Zen meditation. You know, it's been a long journey for you and one that obviously is core to your life. Uh Uh-huh. Well, um, you know, the word Zen has a sort of attraction for a lot of people. And I was one of those people. And uh, I I went for a Zen weekend and then a uh, week-long period of study in New York State. And then I was, uh, by luck... uh, ran into a, uh, a talk by Thich Nhat Hanh in Montreal. As I walked down the street, I saw the a poster, and it was right there. And that's how I started my uh, apprenticeship with Thich Nhat Hanh. And uh, as I'm a musician, I started writing songs to his words. And at one point... He said that I was a bodhisattva of music. Bodhisattva meaning a person who uh, tries to help others in some way uh, to attain some kind of uh, uh, better vision of life. Uh, And uh, I spent nearly a year in Plum Village with him, and uh, then he... uh, he, uh, It's a wonderful addition to anybody's life. You know, there's often in the West um, this notion that you have to sit in rigorous positions and for long hours to accomplish anything in terms of your own spiritual development. And walking meditation, which is very core to um, Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings and to the process of Mahayana Buddhism as it's been brought out into the world, is this notion that we can learn to be very present and 
bring the spiritual aspect of our development into our daily lives. So why don't we focus for a bit on mindfulness and walking, because I use your book, Buddha's Book of Meditation, as well as Thich Nhat Hanh's um, How to Walk, a short little book, and his Long Road Turns to Joy, which is a guide to walking meditation, and it has really changed my life. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yes, uh, mindfulness in walking, mindful driving is uh, is one of my favorite topics because I myself uh, experience some impatience when I'm driving. You see, what happens is that when you think of a place like you're going to the shopping center or whatever, mentally you're already there. Yeah. But the body is still here. <laughs> you're still here. Uh, so it, 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 it creates a lot of, uh, a certain amount of impatience, and, you know, whether you're going to work or whatever. And if you don't believe me, just look at how people drive on the road. Uh, mindfulness at the kitchen sink, uh, washing dishes, especially important, mindful eating uh, is a whole subject in itself because uh, it, your health depends on it. How long you live depends on how you eat. Um, mindfulness in parenting, the mental health of your child depends on it, how, uh, how well attached or how comfortable your child feels. Mindful sex, your enjoyment, your relationship. So, uh, yes, mindfulness. In general, mindfulness is a big word, but it's just a notion, you know, but, but it begins to sort of gain, uh, become more real as you, uh, as you apply it to a certain area of your life. And you know what? Uh, not everybody is mindful in all aspects of their life. Like people might be, somebody might be very mindful at work, but they might not be very mindful as they drive to work. They might be very mindful parents, but they might their sex life might not be very mindful. Uh, so yes, I think uh, a good book on mindfulness would be like a lot of small books uh, on different areas, you know, stapled together <laughs> into a into a into a whole big. A book of some kind, yes. Yeah. Well, and and because so many words are used by so many different teachers and spiritual traditions, it gets a little muddy to understand what is actually even meant by the simple term mindfulness. So maybe from your own vantage point and how you teach and how you were taught and the Plum Village tradition, what exactly can be conveyed by the word mindfulness? Uh, that, that's a very good question, actually. Uh, two people put it on the map. One was John Kabat-Zinn, and the other was Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, I have, a, you know, an old dictionary, uh, 1975, Oxford, huge big dictionary. The word mindfulness is not in there. Interesting. But the word mindlessness is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and this, that, about around that time, Thich Nhat Hanh's The Miracle of Mindfulness was, was 
And uh, the, the, the funny thing is that both Thich Nhat Hanh and John Kabat-Zinn have Zen backgrounds. John Kabat-Zinn was a Zen practitioner, Zen student. Uh, and uh, he sort of came up with that definition of observation, non-judgmental observation, non-judgmental observation of your yourself, your feelings, your emotions, uh, other people, circumstances, weather. Just observe. That's the way things are. That's the way people are. That's the way your partner is. That's the way your dog is. <laughs> That's the way your cat. Just observe things without judging them. Mm-hmm. But that is actually one of the also one of the important principles of Zen, and I think it basically came from Zen. Uh, uh, and uh, so lately, more and more, I use. Uh, I use the wisdom of Zen to sort of uh, uh, give direction to uh, to mindfulness, you know? Interesting. And, yeah, and I was reading a little bit about the history of Zen um, having been a school of Mahayana Buddhism and that it was considered the nonverbal teaching of the Buddhas in India, and then it was brought to China and Japan and elsewhere. Is there a Western differentiation in terms of how Zen is practiced versus in the East? I mean, are there disciplines that they would do in the Eastern communities that perhaps we don't do in the Western or vice versa? Uh, Another interesting question. You know, um, we're talking about a very patriarchal tradition, like uh, women were excluded from a Buddhist community for a long time and so on and so forth. But um, when you look at how Zen came into being, the origin of Zen is uh, recounted in a story where uh, Buddha sat as if he was going to give a talk, and instead of talking, he twirled a flower that he just picked up, he held that flower and smiled. And everybody looked at him like uh, expectantly, Except one person in the group smiled back at him, and he said, you're the one who's going to carry the torch of Zen forward. This is a transmission without words, without uh, ceremonies. I transmit my teaching through you. But when you look at this smiling business, uh, I <laughs> I Google things a lot. I Google the smiling men and women, and I found that women smile 62 times a day in average, and men eight times a day. Wow. So, oddly enough, this patriarchal tradition is taking this smile which is more feminine in our day and perhaps all the time. So uh, there, is a, there is a feminist leaning in all the, uh, in all the uh, Buddhist teachings 
it's sort of like soften up men, if you like, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and uh, I find that very interesting because in our day, uh, you know, the patriarchal situation would never pass anyway, (laughs) but uh, I think then has that uh, built-in feminist tendency, which I like. That's a lovely way to put it. And it's so interesting because smiling just as a practice, I know I had a teacher from the Moroccan tradition of Kabbalah, and he used to say, just stand in front of the mirror and smile every day, at least for 30 seconds, because, you know, it releases endorphins and it enlightens the mind and it relieves stress in the heart. It's it's surprising how much a smile will do for somebody else who sees it in you. I know I, I try when I'm in a place where there are people doing service work of any sort, and I smile at them. You you can feel the connection between the hearts through a smile. I, I think that's the thing that amazes me so much about this simple gesture that our face has the capacity to communicate our heart through. The face is the mirror of the heart. I think Shakespeare came up with that. Yeah, yeah, beautifully put. <laughs> Beautifully put. So when we then look at this notion of mindfulness, busy minds are pretty much the the signpost in everybody's um, life. <laughs> it goes, busy mind, <laughs> too busy to think clearly, too busy to slow down, I'm in a hurry, let's get it done fast. And with today's world of technology having sped up everything and people's response time and conversation time and shortening content but quickening the pace, what does that do to us? Hmm. Well, um, I, I think that uh, there is this slight difference between training and uh, how you live your life. Like, you know, uh, um, I learned Spanish recently. You know, my training is different from actual conversation or music. You know, I'm a musician, like playing the guitar, training, you know, playing scales and all that. It's not the same as when you're performing in front of a group, you know. Uh, there's this beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, saying about uh, uh, Guan Yin, who is the Bodhisattva of compassion. How does how does she how does she act compassionately? Mm-hmm. And the answer is just like someone moves their hands or arms in their sleep. In other words, it comes naturally to her. Now, that's the thing about mindfulness. If if I am Mr. Mindful, <laughs> that means I'm sort of always a little self-conscious, you know? But mindfulness as training is different. Once you're over the training period, then it becomes part of you. And that is, that is a very important distinction. Um, so that... Uh, can we come back to that? I have to take a little break, and then we'll come back to the distinction between 
training as part of arriving <laughs> at mindfulness, which is then just fluid and innate. If you're joining us just now, I'm Zoe Hieronymus, and Joseph Emmett is our guest. Find his book, Finding the Blue Sky, A Mindful Approach to Choosing Happiness Here and Now, a Tarcher 2016 release. Hello, this is Dr. Anders Nilsson of Stanford University, and I have recently written a book called The Gentle Way of the Heart, Discover the Light Within. And you have been listening to the 21st Century Radio with Dr. Sahara Hiranius, and I'd just like to make one comment about the book. It's all about making a roadmap for really discover that love that you have within, how you actually can change your life, perceiving it completely different making actually your life to feel like a wonderful experience of discovery of who you really are and discovery of all the love you have within. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Joseph Emmett is our guest. Find his center in Canada at www.mindfulnessmeditationcenter.org. We're discussing, among other things, mindfulness and his long work as a teacher of um, Zen Buddhism and the writings and legacy of Thich Nhat Hanh. So we were talking about, right before the break, Joseph, this difference between training and performing, um, that training is this journey we take to prepare ourselves for whatever it is, whether it's playing music or acting or speaking. And then once we have the training, we can kind of move, as they say, the Zen spot. <laughs> you, you sort of move into it and are just able to be present with the process and not necessarily think about it. Yes, uh, same thing as a poet, for example. Uh, you know, you, you must study the English language and uh, so on, uh, maybe... Uh, examples, old poets, uh, but when you're writing poetry, there's spontaneity. What comes from inside comes out, right out. It's not uh, so, you know, it's not made up. It's natural. This this naturalness is, is an important part of it. Uh, I think that has this beautiful saying, be beautiful, be yourself. And I think it has all kinds of implications, including uh, uh, what you do at the hairdressers, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, how to, how to, you don't need extra, extra makeup or whatever to be beautiful, like, like, like physically speaking. And also in, uh, in speaking or in writing poetry, uh, you don't need amazing terms of phrase or anything like that. Or, or so uh, this this naturalness, connecting with with nature, nature inside, which is the same as nature outside, connecting with nature and uh, and being able to express that with your every movement, with your talk, with your with your walk, whatever. Uh, that's that's a part of Zen that appeals to me a lot. We, of course, live in a culture that promotes the mask, so to speak, whether it's the makeup or the falsity where one's words don't necessarily align with one's actions. We see it now today as if it's almost um, an epidemic problem. 
During the three years of the coronavirus 19, people had a new experience of staying home, being isolated, having families in proximity to each other that perhaps they had never had before. Can you share with us some of the things your own students and teachers, you know, talked about during those three years and how perhaps what people have learned can benefit themselves and the world? Mm-hmm. Well, it's true. Uh, coffee shops uh, closed, uh, restaurants closed, and a lot of socializing uh, was cut down for sure. Um, uh, it affected particularly people who lived alone, you know. Uh, and uh, I think I think that uh, one of the effects is to underline the importance of a good relationship in your life. Uh, I think. The whole Buddhist idea of sangha, meaning uh, togetherness, or, or 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 that not being alone, you're not alone. Uh, I think the best and the simplest expression of that is having a close relationship, and I think that that became particularly important during this period of lockdown. Yes. You know, one of, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot now that I'm no longer in my 20s, but almost 70, and talking with elders and, you know, whose stories one can learn of on Facebook or through personal relations is that there are a lot of lonely people. You know, sometimes it's because a spouse has died. Sometimes it's because one has become divorced um, or lost a child or a pet. I mean, I think people who have closeness with their domestic pets experience every bit, maybe even more grief sometimes than they do when a human companion passes, because there's this unconditionality of love that one experiences with a domestic pet. So in this space of longing, I think it's a kind of longing that happens again, maybe that we experience in adolescence when we're longing for partnership and longing for deep-feeling relationship beyond our parents or our family or our siblings. How can mindfulness or walking meditation not simply just ease this longing, but transform it into something different? Mm -hmm. Well, walking meditation, I guess, is... um is particularly interesting as it gets you off the meditation cushion. Uh, uh, Sitting has been uh, associated with meditation for a very very long time. I mean, right now I'm looking in my room at the uh, statue of a Buddha who's sitting, of course, not walking. Uh, But... uh, Meditation in action is uh, is essential. Uh, by sitting around, all you do is gain weight, basically. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, 
walking, but walking also uh, make sure you don't look down. For example, when you walk, look. when you look down, you're more likely to be in your thoughts. Like when, if you do any people watching, you can see how differently people walk, uh, their expression. Uh, uh, some people look like they're condemned to death as they walk, you know? Yeah, They're yeah. doing it as sort of like a uh, penance or whatever. And some people radiate light. They, uh, it's not perhaps an obvious smile, but... Uh, and uh, when I walk, I, I look at people, and some, some people smile at me, mostly women. And... Uh, that's because we have so many smiles to give away at 62 a day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're generous. Um, so um, walking meditation is becoming aware of your posture, becoming aware of uh, your mindset while you walk. And uh, so that's what makes it a meditation. Well, and in these, I, I mentioned to you when we spoke off air that Thich Nhat Hanh has these wonderful little books. Um, one is called How to Walk. I mean, these are little tiny pocketbooks. The Long Road Turns to Joy. And uh, The Pocket, Thich Nhat Hanh. And, and I use these every day. I mean, I'm a walker now. I'm in my fourth year of walking every day for at least 20 to 40 minutes in the woods by myself. And it has transformed the rhythm of my life. Let's put it that way. But it's a, really, there's a funny story I have to share about it. When I first started, I used to be a, in addition to being a daily host of a radio program and covering world affairs, I was also an, what they called a commentator. And I wrote commentary that played on our station in the morning and the evenings. And these were generally 250-word commentaries that would take me hours the night before to write, you know, short as hard. <laughs> and when I first started walking, Joseph, rather than just loving the woods and seeing the trees, my mind would launch into writing commentary. And this was already 15 years after doing a daily show, day in, day out, covering world affairs. But my mind's disposition had become so familiar with summarizing world affairs, events that were taking place either near or far. And it took a lot of work. I mean, it shouldn't have, but it did. It took me quite some time, maybe half a year, before that stopped. I mean, I didn't get angry with myself. I didn't, like, try to force stop it. I just observed it. And it was an interesting journey. So for me, it was commentary. For somebody else, it might be commentary about their life or a relationship or a hurtful experience they've had that they replay. So this notion of mindfulness is also pointing to presence, being present and not being stuck in the past or the future, but that's easier said than done for many people. Yes. You know, there's a lot to walk in, especially walking in nature, as you mentioned. Uh, I'll just mention one thing that's important for me. Whether I'm writing a poem or writing a chapter for a new book or something 
something to put on my website, something when I'm working on something, I reach a point where I don't know how to say it. I, I don't know what to say next. And the thing to do at that moment is to take a walk. Mm-hmm. In other words, let your unconscious mind find the answer. Uh, so when you walk, you're no longer working on the point that that where you're stuck, you know. You've, you've given your conscious mind a rest, and but the unconscious mind doesn't rest. It doesn't rest when you're sleeping either. It dreams and taking a nap. Uh, Salvador Dali apparently took 10 naps a day. Einstein really? took three. Uh, We're talking about cat naps, like five minutes, 30 minutes, 15 minutes? I'm talking about like when you're stuck at a certain point, take a break. Uh-huh. And walking is a wonderful way to take that break. And when you come back, you look at the same problem, you'll see it differently. Most likely you'll see the answer looking at you. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So here's about your commentaries. <laughs> yeah, well, that <laughs> was just... <laughs> I can't tell you how disturbing it was. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> be quiet. Be quiet, my restless mind. Be quiet. <laughs> so coming back to this notion of walking, not everybody can walk. Some have disabilities. Some have injuries. Some through aging um, just can't walk. So I loved it when um, Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about you can also walk in your mind. I mean, for instance, when I have challenges and I can't just go for a walk in the woods, maybe it's a pouring down storm, I can sit and visualize the walk. And it feels very much like actually walking. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about this kind of meditative walking where one actually isn't walking, but visualizing or imagining the act of walking, because everybody in the listening audience has walked somewhere, whether it's to the grocery store or their car or their house every day, and there are certain pathways that one walks regularly. Yeah, you make me uh, think of something else at this point. Um, I think that sitting in the woods in the middle of nature or next to the lake or on a beach watching the sea is like walking in some ways because Mm -hmm. when you walk, the scenery changes around you. But when you are in nature, say you're watching the lake or the the sea, the scenery changes (laughs) without you walking. (laughs) Like different birds are flying, the the waves are different, Clouds come and go, and the sunlight changes. And so, even though you're not going anywhere, the nature is changing. You're listening to 21st Century Radio. Find more about Joseph Emmett and his work at www.mindfulnessmeditationcenter.org. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. I'm Ben Montgomery, author of Grandma Gatewood's Walk and The Man Who Walked Backward and several other books. You can learn more about me and my work at www.gangray.com. 
Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Our guest is Joseph Emmett and his book, Finding the Blue Sky, A Mindful Approach to Choosing Happiness Here and Now, a Tarcher 2016 release. Before the break, we were talking, Joseph, a little bit about when people can't walk um, in order to practice this present mindfulness meditation. And you were saying, well, you know, you can sit and watch nature, the lake, a river, uh, the trees blow, because you said the scenery changes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I think uh, even people, you know, living in condos on a busy street, people watching, people watching is uh, is one of my pastimes. And uh, even if uh, it's not the lake or the birds, uh, people watching, uh, changing scenery is, uh, if you can't walk, I think this is one way of observing things happen, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's so... Um What's the right word? Challenge isn't really the word I'm looking for, but it's kind of like a push-pull in the Western culture between the promotion for happiness and then the promotion for things. You know, the promotion for minimalism and then the promotion for consumption. And I often find that these polarizations, and this is outside of body politic, this is like a natural polarization within us of inhaling and exhaling. That's how I think of it. And oftentimes there's an effort to fill up an emptiness or a place of absence by taking something in, whether it's smoking or drinking or eating too much or, you know, buying something you don't need. Does mindfulness help us become more balanced in that process? Uh, yes, because uh, mindfulness would uh, uh, let you become aware of why you're doing this. You know, uh, as you mentioned, if there's to fill up some emptiness inside, uh, uh, being aware of that, aware of that, is is a good start. You know, uh, uh, to 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 question to question yourself. Um, especially today with global warming uh, and uh, the, the, the less things you buy, uh, the less things we throw out, uh, the more we're, we're helping the uh, nature to not to be overwhelmed with our activities, you know. So, yes, mindfulness would be a good, good antidote to consumerism. Mm-hmm. And and what Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, I love this, at Plum Village and elsewhere around the world, and I assume at your center in Canada, um, there's, a, there's a practice called touching the earth. And I know even my acupuncturist used to say that, you know, if you're overwhelmed, just go sit down on Mother Earth and and feel her and let her embrace you because our whole, even the hurt cycles in our body are attuned to the Earth's own rhythm. And and I also like this thing that one can walk for our ancestors or walk for somebody who is ill, that that in the process of walking or in reflecting upon walking, um, 
that we can be of service. It's not just ourselves alone, that we're literally walking with all of nature. And as you pointed out, whether it's in a city street, though it might be harder for people because of the noise, or in a nice, you know, valley or a meadow or a mountain, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, in walking in nature, you're certainly communing with other beings, trees, squirrels, <laughs> birds, worms, whatever they are. And uh, this, you mentioned being alone and all that. Uh, this, uh, we're never alone in that sense. Uh, I mean, we couldn't live without vegetables, without green plants. We couldn't live without the trees that create the oxygen that we breathe. So we are part of, of nature to to realize this oneness with nature, to realize our communion, the community, being part of a community. Is, is, uh, exactly. It, it, it's a part of mindfulness, you say, but it's also part of Zen. I see Zen as wisdom, providing wisdom and mindfulness as uh, putting that wisdom to work for you mm-hmm. in daily life. Yeah, I remember the Dalai Lama once saying, somebody had asked him a question about spirituality, and he said, there is no spirituality that's separate from your daily life. That the practice is to be present in our daily life, and that our daily life is full of this holiness. And maybe sometimes it takes us till we're older and elders to be able to live this practice. People will say, well, you've burned out your fire and you don't run around as much. You don't even have the desire to. So it's a good time to be a guide to others. How has aging changed your practice? Aging, oddly enough, made me more active. (laughs) You might laugh at this, but I... uh, I bike for about an hour, an hour and a half every day, and uh, being being in shape did not was not a big uh, part of my life before, uh, but now it's become more important because uh, uh, I feel better when I'm when I've done my hour or an hour and a half of biking. Um, apart from that, personally, I'm pretty lucky in that uh, I, I haven't suffered some of the uh, adverse effects of aging. And uh, I attribute that to the fact that my partner works as a counselor for supplements at the biggest health food store around here. Uh-huh. Yes, and we eat very well. We we eat like according to the book, and um, and uh, we take some certain supplements because uh, you know uh, the the ground that that vegetables grow in is not necessarily rich in every mineral uh, 
and also our digestive system doesn't always uh, work in such a way as to extract the right vitamins in the right quantity and so on and so forth. So uh, I think eating, mindful eating, uh, mindful uh, exercise, if you like, in that sense, uh, are an important part of aging if you, if you don't want to suffer the, the adverse effects of uh, getting old. Yeah, and, and just slow down and, you know, be respectful of what it is because uh, one of my teachers used to say, I have an appointment with my body, and then he'd go make dinner. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm serving my body. And it's so interesting because I have to laugh about it. When we're young, you know, we imagine, oh, when I retire, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And most people, I'm not speaking for all people, but many people, I should say, when they finally do retire, find they don't have the health or the financial wherewithal or perhaps even the desire to do all the things that when they were younger, they thought they'd do, oh, I'm going to travel the world. And then they discover, well, traveling's not really so great anymore. It takes a lot of time, there's a lot of limitations, or whatever it is. And so it becomes um, more of an inner life that perhaps can become more rich than when we're younger and our focus is on, you know, building our careers or building our families, building our reputations. And then, then all of a sudden you have this opportunity to, you know, guide others, younger people or people your own age who might be suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're making me think of uh, the importance of meaningful work. Uh, me, uh, the idea is uh, uh, to choose work that expresses, that is in conformity with your own nature, with uh, your deepest wishes. And uh, you look around this day and read the news, a lot of people are quitting work, and um, they are also looking for meaningful work. And uh, this, this meaningful work is, is an important issue. And, and once the pressures of, uh, of daily life, of raising children and, uh, uh, you know, getting enough to eat and so on, those pressures are off, and uh, then you can have a chance to uh, to reflect on meaningful work. And a lot of people start uh, start you know new careers after after finishing you know uh, a regular work t- uh, period and retiring. So, uh, yes, retirement can be a time for, for getting in touch with uh, your, your deepest wishes and, and expressing that in your work. Exactly. And, and that it might not look like what one thought it would look like. And along yes. those lines, you know, you've been at this your, a long time. You're a practice musician. You were a Rhodes Scholar. By the way, what were you a Rhodes Scholar for? Fulbright scholar. Oh, uh, that was it, Fulbright. Thank you. Uh huh. That actually, I'm a. I've 
studied music. I have a doctorate in music, uh, uh, and uh, that came as a result of uh, my work as a musician and composer. And uh, when I applied for uh, to enter the New England New England Conservatory of Music, uh, I, I I was I, I had that scholarship because of my previous work. Huh? How interesting. So, of course, the question I'd love to ask all my guests at some point, if we have a chance, is when you began this journey and you discovered Zen and Zen meditation, and now you've been teaching what you're learning and joining others around the world in it, did you find what you were looking for? Interesting question. Um, you, you see... Uh, Zen has an interesting self-destructing <laughs> habit because uh, in the beginning you are sort of interested in Zen as a as a, maybe as a philosophy of life and so on, but as time goes by, Zen pushes you toward particular things, maybe the, uh, perhaps the way best, best Zen conversation that indicates that is uh, this, uh, you know, seeker goes into a temple and meets the master and asks about the meaning of Zen, and the master says, the oak tree in the front yard or uh, another one says, have you had your breakfast yet? This is in response to what is the meaning of life or what's the meaning of Zen. Have you had your breakfast yet? The guy says, yes. And says, well, then go wash your bowl. <laughs> you <know? laughs> exactly. You know, it's always on the simple things we have to sometimes say goodbye. You're listening to 21st Century Radio. Find more about Joseph Emmett and his work at www mindfulnessmeditationcenter, C-E-N-T-R-E, dot org. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and remember, we do need more love in the world.